So take a few minutes to settle down. Probably been very busy today, doing lots of different things. There might still be some thoughts in your mind about what you were doing today or what you didn't manage to do and still have to do later. So put those thoughts aside for now. Just give your mind a break, a rest from all those thoughts. Just let your mind be right here in this present place and present moment. Just be aware of your breath coming in and going out. Let the mind settle down, become calm, peaceful. Now contemplate, what does wisdom mean to you? Do you see it as something worthwhile, something you want to develop? So according to Buddhism, wisdom is a very important quality. So it's helpful for ourselves so that we can avoid making mistakes, avoid creating problems for ourselves. So if we have more wisdom, we'll have less suffering, less problems. And even when problems do occur, we'll have uh, the ability to deal with them better. And wisdom is also beneficial for others. Because if we have more wisdom, will be less likely to do things that cause problems and suffering for others. And instead, we'll be more likely to do things that are helpful for them. This is especially true in the ultimate sense, becoming a bodhisattva and then becoming a Buddha, having incredible qualities and abilities with which to help other beings, all living beings, and help them be free of suffering and the causes of suffering.
So these are the things that wisdom helps us to have, to do. And that's the real purpose of doing study in, in, um, in Buddhist philosophy, is to develop our wisdom. So try to engage in this study with, with joy, with enthusiasm, and with compassion and altruism, wishing that by learning and gaining more wisdom will become beneficial for ourselves and for all other beings. Okay, so last time that was our first class and we just had a general introduction to this uh, subject of tenets and we looked at the definition of a Buddhist proponent of tenets and then the list of the four tenet schools or tenet systems in Buddhism. And then we started looking at the first of these schools, um, which is called Vibhashika, or Great Exposition. So what do you remember about them? <laughs> <laughs> Anything? They're one of the Hinayana tenant schools. Huh? <laughs> They're one of the Hinayana tenant schools. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I know the, the, the term Hinayana is kind of not so nice, mm -hmm. but it's a lot shorter than fundamental vehicle so mm -hmm. <laughs> so I I don't mean to use the term Hinayana in a derogatory way with great respect we use the term Hinayana but it is it's in the text so we can't it's kind of hard to avoid it um, so yeah so they're one of the Hinayana schools and do you remember any of the differences between Hinayana tenets and Mahayana tenets do they only assert they don't have selflessness of Phenomena. Right, only selflessness of persons. And they don't assert uh, omniscience in the same way. Right, right. Knowing everything all at the same time. That's what the Mahayana schools say. They don't use Buddha nature. Yeah, they don't have that term. They don't say all beings can become Buddhas. That's good enough for me. <laughs> Okay, so, um, yeah, so we had the definition of Vibhashika, and now the second point is the divisions of the Vibhashika school. And so there are said to be these three sub-schools, Kashmiris, Aparantikas, and Magadas. And this seem to be di distinguished by where they live. <laughs> so Kashmir, has anyone been to Kashmir? Kashmir, it's uh, up in the northwest part of India. Um, so that's one area where the Vaibhashika is settled. Uh, Parantika, I don't know what that term means. Magadha, the third one, Magadha is, is the area in uh, India where the Buddha lived. It's kind mm -hmm. of north central India. So there are some Vaibhashikas there. And in Geshe Tekshil's commentary, he says, the Aparantikas are the rest. <laughs> the ones who are not Kashmiris and not, <laughs> not 
Magadas. Yeah. Um, but they also apparently have different assertions uh, from each other. And I came across one related to the 12 links, which we've been learning about uh, in the Friday night class. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I found some information in the, anyway, I just found some information about that. Um, and he said that there are uh, some, uh, some Vaibhashikas who say that the 12 links happen simultaneously. Mm -hmm. oh. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll, um, I'll read the explanation. It's, it's a little complicated, but anyway, this is how they explain that. So in the, let's, let's say there's a person who kills an animal with attachment, like maybe a hunter shoots a deer with attachment. Okay, so at that time he has ignorance, first link. Then the karmic formation, second link, that action, which is the, mainly the mental factor of intention. Consciousness, so consciousness at that point, he has name and form, the five aggregates, uh, the six spheres, six sensor, uh, sense powers, and then uh, contact, feeling, those are ever-present mental factors, so they're always there, and then craving, probably craving to eat the meat of this deer, and then um, grasping, which is a you know, intensified form of craving, and then they say action, which is existence. That's link number 10. I'm not sure how they explain that, but maybe the action that he did. And then birth, because the aggregates are already born. <laughs> and aging, because the aggregates are maturing. And death, because some aggregates have ceased. So, yeah, this is according to Geshe Jambagyatso, uh, teacher at Institute. He was explaining the Abhidharma Kosha, which is um, the text that explains the Vibhashika tenets. So that's what some Vibhashikas say. But other Vibhashikas, mainly the Kashmiri Vibhashikas, uh, they have a different presentation, which seems to be the same as the Pali uh, tradition that Venerable presented. Does anyone remember that? How does that go? Out of the 12 links? out over how many lives in the according to the Pali tradition. It's over three lives. It's over three lives, yeah. So the first and the second link happened in a past life. Mm -hmm. Then links three through, through ten happen in the present life. And then links eleven and twelve happen in a future life. So anyway, anyway, I'm just making the point that the, these different sub-schools have different views about things. But that's just one example that I came across. And then um, there's also a division into 18 sub-schools that arose after the Buddha, after the Buddha's Parinirvana. And this is incredibly complicated. If anyone's interested in it, <laughs> You can find it in Jeffrey Hopkins' book, Meditation on Emptiness, Appendix 3. He has, like, there's a number of different versions of these 18 subschools, what their names are, what they are. Anyway, it's, it's quite complicated, but yeah, some people might be interested in that. <laughs> okay, so that's the divisions of Vibhashika. 
Then the next point is the etymology. Why are they called Vaibhashika? Um, and two reasons are given. The first is because, um, I mean, the text says, it's because they propound tenets following the great detailed explanation, uh, Um So just that much there. So I was interested in this text and I, um, and I found a little bit of information about it. Um, apparently it's huge. It's like an encyclopedia. And um, the Vibhashika believe that this text was the word of the Buddha, but um, others disagree. And in fact, Geshima Kelsomomo said it was written in 150 CE. So that's several hundred years after the Buddha. And it was not translated into Tibetan. Oh, that's there in the slide until the 20th century and so the tibetans relied on vasubandhu's uh, text treasury of manifest knowledge or abhidhamma kosha in order to understand the vabhashika tenets so they didn't have this text mahavibhasha uh, in tibetan language and i found a little bit more on uh, wikipedia <laughs> So it's, um, it's a treatise on the Sarvastivada Abhidharma. It's one of the sub-schools of, uh, of Buddhism. And it was composed in the ancient Kashmiri region of Northern India. It was translated into Chinese by the scholar pilgrim, I need help with this, Xuanzang? Xuanzang, you know him? Uh, between 656 and 659 CE. There's no Sanskrit, uh, no Sanskrit version uh, still existing. So that means there was only, there's only a Chinese uh, version of this text uh, for a long time until 1949, <laughs> the Chinese monk Fashun, Fashun, F-A-Z-U-N, Zuen, he translated it into Tibetan mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and gave a copy of it to the young 14th Dalai Lama when the Dalai Lama visited Beijing in 1954. Mm -hmm. It must have been a huge job because it's got it's 10 volumes. It says the text was published in 2011 in 10 volumes. Mm -hmm. So now there's a Tibetan version of it, and I was thinking probably some scholar will take it upon themselves to translate it into English. <laughs> but anyway, hmm. so um, this is a text used by the Vaibhashikas, um, not just a text, it's almost like an encyclopedia of a lot of different, um, a lot of information. Abhidharma, it's, it's mainly Abhidharma. And then, um, yeah, so Tibetans. Uh, have been using Vasubandhu's text, Abhidharma Kosha. So that's one of the five main treatises that they study in the monasteries to become Geshis. And it's really an amazing text. I, I had a little bit of chance to learn it. And Vasubandhu is an amazing person. Um, the story about him, he lived in the fourth or fifth century. And the story is that he started off as a Vaibhashika. 
Later, he became a Swatrantika, the next school. And still later, he became a Chittamatra because his brother or half-brother, not sure, was a Sangha. And a Sangha was all along a Mahayanist. And so a Sangha managed to convert his brother to Mahayana. And he's written a number of texts on the Chittamatra school, like the one we studied with Jay, called on, what was that called, The Three Natures? And another one called the 20 verses, the 30 verses. So he's he's apparently just brilliant, one of the main main uh, brilliant masters res respected by the Tibetans. Okay, so that's one reason that they're called Vibhashika, because the name of that text is Mahavibhasa. And I guess Vibhasa means detailed, <laughs> lots of details, lots of... Uh, yeah, little bits of information. And then the second point is that they propound the three times as instances or particulars of substance or substantial entities. And um, there'll be a little bit more information about this in a, in a later slide, um, so I won't go into it now. but. Um, I have to confess, this, this, this terminology of substance, substantial entities, substantial existence is so difficult. I have so much trouble with it. <laughs> it seems to have different meanings. But anyway, what Geshe Sopa said, um, just as an example of this, is, um, let's say, a cup. Yesterday's cup, today's cup, and tomorrow's cup all exist substantially and can perform functions. So that's just an example of what it means to say the three times are instances of substance. And I'm not sure how important this is because in Geshe Ma Kelsang Wangmo's uh, booklet, she doesn't mention it at all. <laughs> so maybe it's not a big deal. And if we don't understand it, it's not going to prevent us from getting enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's it's something that differentiates the Vibhashikas from the other schools. They have the other schools have other assertions about the three times. But this is something that's always driven me kind of crazy. I guess it is a difficult topic. So let's go on. Number four is the mode of asserting objects. Um, so what do they say about objects? So one thing they say is um, a functioning thing. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's just translated as thing, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, it, it can also be translated as functioning thing. A functioning thing is that which can perform a function. <laughs> and it's synonymous with existent and object of knowledge. So do you notice anything strange there? Does that mean that all objects of knowledge are functioning things? Functioning things? Um, it means that all existing things, whatever exists, everything that exists is a functioning thing. Mm -hmm. So have you heard that before or have you heard something different before? We've heard something different. <laughs> what have you heard that was different? 
that functioning things are impermanent things. Right, phenomena. right. So the other schools, according to like maybe it's Swaptantika that it goes into details with this, they say that only impermanent things are functioning things. Um, because uh, the other schools say that when it function, when you talk about a function, the main function that they're concerned about is being able to produce results, being able to, you know, give rise to results, to effects. And only impermanent phenomena can do that, not permanent phenomena. Permanent phenomena cannot produce effects. So that's what the other schools say. But this school says, like the next bullet point, thus functioning things can be impermanent, like a cup, a table, a body, or permanent. Okay, so they say that even permanent things are functioning things. And um, so what they say, like the classic example of a, of a permanent phenomenon is always uncompounded space, uncompounded space. So they say, that performs a function. You can move around in it. <laughs> you can move furniture. You can put things there. So that performs a function. <laughs> so that's their answer to why even permanent phenomena uh, are functioning things. I mean, it makes sense. It's just that the other schools say, mm, no. The main function of a functioning thing is is uh, bringing results, performing, um, you know, being a cause of results. Can I ask you a question about it? Huh? But the synonymous words for functioning thing exist in object of knowledge can be either impermanent or permanent. So oh. they've, they've, they've taken functioning thing and made it synonymous with something that in yeah. others... No. Yeah, I got a chart coming okay. up next that hopefully will clarify this. Um, I just want to explain the last couple of uh, terms in, in, in the second bullet point. Analytical cessations and non-analytical cessations. <laughs> um, so an analytical cessation is a cessation that comes about by doing analysis. So this is what we are, like for, for example, with selflessness, with emptiness, we are analyzing how does the eye exist? How does the cup exist? So we're doing an analysis. And as a result of that analysis, if we do it correctly, then we'll gain the wisdom that understands selflessness or emptiness. And as a result of that, when we gain the direct realization of emptiness, then we achieve a cessation you know, a certain portion of the afflictions are annihilated, eliminated, such that they will never come back. So in other words, the second, uh, the third noble truth, true cessation. So true cessation is an analytical cessation, and that's a permanent phenomenon. And then non-analytical cessations are temporary absences of uh, an affliction for example um, you know they talk about this is expression of being in the zone you know when you get really focused on something that you're doing and you kind of you might not 
feel hungry, you might not have any desire for food. At that moment, there's no desire for food. But it's not, it's not a, a complete cessation <laughs> because the desire will come back afterwards. So it's not a cessation that means that that affliction will never come back. It's just a temporary absence, a temporary cessation of a, an affliction because your mind is occupied with something else. So that's the meaning of a non-analytical cessation. So, the, the, so those two types of cessations are said to be permanent in the sense that they they are not, um, yeah, they're not impermanent phenomena. Cessation is a permanent phenomena, just an absence. So those are some examples of permanent phenomena. So. The next slide, um, yeah. So do they give examples of why, how those two perform functions? I know the generic examples always of. I didn't space. read it. I could make a guess. Well, I mean, the analytical cessation, and you know, performs the function of freeing your mind from all uh -huh. your suffering, <laughs> and then you can achieve nirvana. So, I'm just guessing. That's yeah, yeah. that's. And then the ana a non-analytical cessation, um, like you don't feel hungry when you're focused on painting a picture or writing a book or whatever, um, means you can go for a long time without having to eat. I don't know, mm -hmm. just a guess. They probably come up with something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we always talk about how nirvana is not caused, right? Yeah. Well, I think they would agree with that. They, uh -huh. would, they would still agree that it's not caused and they probably agree that it doesn't perform that it doesn't give rise to a result but they would it seems they're saying it, it still performs some function okay. and I can kind of see their point <laughs> <laughs> but anyway let, let, the, let them argue with each other <laughs> so I thought some of you um, might not be so familiar with this whole business of dividing things into permanent and impermanent phenomena. And so um, so I just thought to put this up because it's really important. It comes up again and again and again and it's yeah, it's quite important to understand the difference between impermanent phenomena and permanent phenomena. And so this chart is according to the other schools, not Vibhashika, okay? And then I'll point out afterwards how the Vibhashika differ. So this is, so it said that what it, things that exist and the definition of an existent, what's the definition of an existent? That which can be observed by a valid consciousness. Yeah, so that's the definition. It, an existent is what can be observed by a valid cognition, a valid mind. So if a valid mind, a correct, fully correct mind, is able to see something or know something, then that means that thing exists. And, um, and then they talk about non-existence. Those are things that can't be known by a valid mind, although we can still talk about them and we can think about them, we can imagine them like the horns of, of a rabbit 
or a flower growing in space, or Harry Potter. I think <laughs> Harry Potter is, a <laughs> or Hamlet, or any of these characters. You know, they're just invented by somebody's mind, and they don't really exist. You can't actually find them living any place on, on, on this planet. So there's lots of non-existence, but non-existence don't exist. So <laughs> we can still talk about them. But if we just take existence, things that do exist, and and synonyms of existence are, there's different synonyms. One is object, so an object has to be something existent. Object of knowledge is also something that exists and so on. So those are synonyms. So things that exist are divided into two groups, impermanent phenomena and permanent phenomena. There's nothing that exists that isn't either impermanent or permanent. And there's nothing that's both. Nothing can be both permanent or impermanent. So this is a clear division. And impermanent phenomena are things that change. They go through change like constantly, every tiny nanosecond or whatever is the shortest amount of time. And there's three types of impermanent phenomena. Forms. Forms are like material things, things made of atoms, particles. So examples are tables, bodies, cars, horses, trees, mountains, and so on. So those are all examples of forms. Second type of impermanent phenomena are consciousnesses or minds. So all the different kinds of mental states that we have, those are also impermanent phenomena. And they're not form, they're not made of particles. They're non-physical, but they're still impermanent, changing all the time. And there's a third type of impermanent phenomena, which um, Venerable translates as abstract composites. There's other ways of translating that, but that's kind of a simple one. And that includes, so that, that, that's a, a place where impermanent things that are neither forms nor consciousness are put. <laughs> so any impermanent thing that's neither a form, neither physical, nor a mind, a consciousness, is put into that third category. So examples of that are person, okay, so Venerable Semke, when we say Venerable Semke, she's a person, okay, we're all persons, and animals are persons, Maitri and Karuna and Upeka, they're persons too. So the pers a person is an abstract composite, it's neither form, neither a physical material thing, and it's also not a consciousness but it's existent, it does exist, and it's impermanent, changing all the time. Another example of an abstract composite is time, and that includes all the different divisions of time, like year, month, week, day, hour, minute, second, and so on. So those are impermanent phenomena, they're changing, but they're not physical, they're not matter, and they're also not consciousness. So they go into that third basket. Third. Oh, how is person different from bodies? Because is a person their body? No. I mean, when we say yeah. Venerable Semke, okay. is so she it's her more body? The, the label? <laughs> well, this is what, yeah, all the Buddhist schools agree that a person is what is imputed 
on the aggregates. Okay. There has to be more than just a body, because mm -hmm. if there's a corpse there, we wouldn't say that's a person. So it has to be a body and a mind, a combination okay. of body okay. and mind aggregates. So that combination of body and mind is labeled person, okay. or John, or Senke, or, or whatever. Um, so it's just what's imputed or labeled mm -hmm. onto a collection of aggregates. And then below that are synonyms of impermanent phenomena. And again, this is non-vibhashika. So a synonym for impermanent phenomena is functioning thing, product, something that's produced, compounded phenomena, things that come into existence from causes and conditions, cause, effect. So those are some synonyms of impermanent phenomena. And then on the other side is permanent phenomena. Those are things that do not change. And um, so examples, non-compounded space, which is explained as the mere lack of obstructive contact. So there's space everywhere. It's the absence of obstruction. And then a true cessation. So that's the third noble truth. When you eliminated ignorance, eliminated anger, eliminated the other afflictions, then, and, and you know, such that they will never arise again, that's the meaning of a true cessation. So that's a permanent phenomena. Emptiness, emptiness, the absence of inherent existence, that's also a permanent phenomena. And then the last one is the absence of an elephant in this room. If you haven't heard that one before, that, that comes up all the time. <laughs> it's cute. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, an, it's something that exists. The absence of an elephant exists because we can know it. If somebody walks into the room and says, hey, I've lost my elephant, is my elephant in here? We can all say, no, there's no elephant in here. We can say that with absolute certainty, right? So it's something we can know, something we can be certain about. <laughs> Therefore, it's existent, it exists, but it's a permanent phenomenon. It's not something that can produce effects. Um, not something that's changing moment by moment. Now people, somebody might disagree and say, no, it does change because if an elephant came into the room then the absence of the elephant would stop existing. Yeah, it can go out of existence. A permanent phenomenon can go out of existence, but while it's there, while it's existing, it doesn't go through changes. It doesn't change momentarily. I know it takes a while to get your mind around that, but that's what they say. And then synonyms. Some synonyms of permanent phenomena are non-product, non-compounded phenomena or uncompounded phenomena. So this is what the other schools say. Now, Vabashika, what Vabashika would say is they would take the term functioning thing, which is in the column under impermanent phenomena, they would take that away from there and they would put it up at the top mm -hmm. <laughs> along with existent. They would say, Functioning thing is synonymous with existent, an object of knowledge, object, and so on. So that's that's the only difference. 
And I don't know if it's such a huge difference, if it's such a big deal, but anyway, this is one of the um, differences between the Vabashikas and the other schools. Does that make sense? Are you okay, ready to move on? Uh, the next, this is really interesting, the two truths. Okay, so this is a really interesting topic. Um, each of the four Buddhist schools has their own explanation, explanation of the two truths, conventional truth and ultimate truth. Um, so according to this school of Ibashika, a conventional truth is a phenomenon such that if it is physically broken or mentally separated into parts, the mind apprehending it ceases. And Geshema simply says that phenomenon ceases to exist. That's a simpler way of saying it. So um, an example, example they give in the text is a, vat, a vase. So let's say you have a porcelain vase, and if you drop it on a hard floor, then it will break into many pieces. Um, and so those pieces, maybe there's a hundred pieces there. If you look at that, if all those pieces lying on the floor, would you say that's a vase? Do you see a vase there? No. Okay. So that's the meaning of a conventional truth um, when it's either either you break it physically or you take it apart physically or just mentally mentally break it down into its components and if it no longer appears like that object um, then that's a conventional truth so other examples they give are cloth take apart all the threads of a piece of cloth and then you just have a big mass of threads <laughs> you wouldn't say oh that's a cloth i want to make a shamdap out of it <laughs> or a mala if your mala breaks the string breaks and the beads are all over the floor and you wouldn't say oh what a nice mala <laughs> you'll say a bunch of beads and a bicycle so any yeah these are just examples of conventional truths an ultimate truth, on the other hand, I mean, a simple way of saying an ultimate truth, it's either something that can't be taken apart, or even if it was taken apart, it would still appear like that object. This is a little harder to understand. So let's look at what it says. It says a phenomenon such that if it is physically broken or mentally separated into parts, the mind apprehending it doesn't, does not cease, or it doesn't cease to exist as that phenomenon. So examples, uh, one example is a partless particle. And this is a hot topic, <laughs> at least for Buddhists. Um, the, the Buddhist schools, yeah, they, uh, they discuss partless particle. And, um, they give the vibhashikas a hard time because they they say there's such a thing as a partless particle. So um, I relied on um, Guy Nulun's book, uh, Appearance and Reality, to understand what partless particles are. 
So I'll just summarize what he says. Um, so according to this school, all gross material objects are made of particles that have no spatial extension. I find that hard to get my head around. No spatial, they don't take up any space. There's no ex spatial extension. And they are called directionally partless particles because they don't have a top, a bottom, right side, left sides, and so on. So that you can't designate sides to them. This is the top, this is the bottom, this is the right, this is the left, because they don't take up any space. I guess that's what it means. That's the meaning of a partless particle. And, but they're not completely partless <laughs> um, because they do have parts they are made up of what are called substance particles. Um, and there's a, there are eight types of substance particles. Four of them are uh, related to the four elements, mm -hmm. earth, water, fire, and air or wind. And the other four are objects of four of our senses, um, visual form, smell, taste, and touch. They leave out sound. And so, um, yeah, so I don't know if, yeah, anyway, the idea is all matter, all physical phenomena is actually made up of particles that in turn are made up of those eight substances, earth, water, fire, and wind. You probably heard of, this, came across this in the um, Friday night classes. And then form, sound, no, not sound, form, taste, smell, and, and uh, uh, touch. So the substance particles, which are components of the partless particle, they can't exist. They can't exist by themselves. They can't be separated. They always have to be together. Yeah. Um, so that's why they say these tiny particles, which Guy Newland calls them conglomerate particles because they are <laughs> conglomerates of the eight substance particles. Um, but those conglomerate particles, according to this school, um, can't be broken down any further. You can't separate them into parts. And they also don't have top and bottom and right side and left side and so on. Does that make sense? <laughs> I can't, I probably won't be able to answer questions about it. Yeah, then we'll come back. Well, these partless particles don't have like spatial dimensions so how is form arising from this well this is what the other schools say the other the other Buddhist <laughs> schools <laughs> so they they um, challenge the the Vibhashikas. they say if if there were such a thing as these directionally partless particles they would not be able to come together and form larger objects um, but they would collapse into each other they don't have size. You can't talk about one, the right side of one particle, 
touching the left side of the other particle because they don't have a right side and a left side. So the other schools say, well, they would all just collapse together and occupy the same space. So they wouldn't be able to, you know, come together and form larger, um, larger objects. So this is what the other Buddhist schools say to the Vibhashikas. And, um, and so what the Vibhashikas say in response, I'll read what Guy Newland says. Um, so they respond by claiming that while each individual substance, oh yeah, so they say that the individual substance particles do not have the quality of resistance or impenetrability that keeps two things from being in the same place. Directionally partless conglomerate particles, those are the bigger ones, they do have resistance. And so um, they won't collapse into each other and occupy the same space. They can come together and build up gross material objects that do have spatial extension. Mm -hmm. But then he adds, we may wonder how eight resistanceless substance particles can combine to reform, uh, to form a resistant conglomerate. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, they, they have lots of discussion about this. But I think my understanding is, and I could be wrong, but I think that the other Buddhist schools, at least the Prasangika, do say that there are particles that can't be physically broken down any further. There are the smallest particles that can't be divided further, but they wouldn't label them partless. They wouldn't say they are partless particles because they do have a top and a bottom <laughs> and an eastern side and a western side and, a, and so on. So they do have parts in that sense, directional parts, even if they can't be um, broken down. Have you heard that when mentioned? Have you ever discussed particle physics with Tibetan person? <laughs> Not at a level like this. <laughs> yeah. And what did they say in Western physics? Did they say that there are extremely tiny particles that don't have spatial extension? Um, we, we ask the question differently in a way. So like a proton, we would talk about its size because it's made up of other things. Like there's experiments where you go, oh, we can see that there's structure within it and it has a size. For electrons, we don't see that there's a substructure and we don't see that there's like a radius. We don't see that it, it has a size. So in a way we do treat an electron as a point particle, if you're treating it like a particle. Um, and there's some other particles like that. So there's particles that we have not found a size to, it's, and we don't see a structure, and there's other particles that we see, oh, they're made up of other things. Mm -hmm. So it's still being explored. Absolutely. Hmm. Anyway, that's partless particles. And then the Vabhashika also assert a partless moment of mind um, in the sense of, in, in a temporal sense. Um, so mind or consciousness is changing all the time, like every, whatever tiny moment of time there is, mind is changing. But this school says that there is a, 
maybe not smallest, but shortest, <laughs> shortest, shortest uh, moment of mind. They can't be divided any further. The other schools don't agree. The other schools say, no, you can divide mind in a temporal sense into shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and ad infinitum. You can never find, you can never come to a point where you say, this is the shortest moment of mind. So again, that's something that this school and the other schools disagree on. And then permanent phenomena. So all permanent phenomena would also be ultimate truths, mainly because they can't really be... Well, I guess you could divide them mentally. Like you could take space. You could... Like this is what people do when they buy a new house. You know, they walk in and they, you know, they start mentally dividing up the space. This is where we'll put the television. This is where we'll put the sofa. Yeah, so you can mentally divide space. Stephen must have lots of experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, but even if you mentally divide space, it's still space. Yeah, it doesn't change. It, it, it doesn't stop being space. Your mind doesn't stop seeing space. So it would be ultimate truth. So I'll just read something from um, Jeffrey's book, Meditation on Emptiness. Um, he says, for Vibhashika, ultimate truths are objects that can bear analysis. This means that even when reduced, either physically or through the process of analysis, they still generate in a perceiver an apprehension of themselves. For instance, a clay pot, if broken with a hammer or analyzed into parts, no longer generates a consciousness, consciousness that perceives a pot or thinks pot. Therefore, a pot is not an ultimate truth. However, the matter, the like physical matter of the pot, is still matter, even down to the finest unbreakable particle. Therefore, objects such as partless particles, partless moments of consciousness, and permanent phenomena are ultimate truths. They are true for the ultimate analytical, supramundane consciousness. <laughs> they are also called ultimate truths because they definitely have ultimate existence. And then he goes on to say, all objects that require an aggregation of particles or of moments are conventional truths. They're conventional because they are designated in accordance with worldly conventions. And they are truths because such designations are true. So I thought it might be nice to just pause here for a moment and do a little meditation on this and try to understand it better. I thought we could use uh, a table since we all have tables right in front of us. So you can use the table in front of you as a example. So close your eyes and think about the table. And then mentally take it apart. Think about the different parts that make up the table and mentally separate them and you can lay them out nice and neatly or just pile them up in a heap 
So when you look at those parts, either scattered around or piled up in a heap, heap, do you see a table? Does your mind think table? So that's an example of a conventional truth. And now focus on one of those parts, like maybe the a leg of the table or the top of the table. And imagine it taking that apart, breaking it down into smaller parts, slivers of wood. and then into even smaller parts, what we call molecules and atoms. And eventually, according to this school, you would come to the smallest part or particle that can't be broken down any further, can't be separated out into its parts. And according to this school, those extremely minute particles don't have spatial extension. They don't have sides you can designate, like top and bottom and so on. Nevertheless, they can come together and form bigger pieces of matter, eventually becoming wood, and eventually becoming a table. So those extremely minute, partless particles are examples of ultimate truths. As Jeffrey says, they are true or an ultimate analytical supermundane consciousness. And they definitely have ultimate existence. wonder if the Vaibhashika school was still existent today or if it's gone extinct. I don't know. <laughs> you know, in China, or in the Chinese tradition, if they have the Mahavibhasha, they might. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there are any people who continue to call themselves Vaibhashika, but I wonder if some of their views um, or similar views are still existing. And I found this is um, this is the Pali Abhidharma. Bhikkhu Bodhi compiled um, this book 
a comprehensive manual of Abhidhamma. And in here is an explanation of um, the two truths according to the Pali tradition. He calls them uh, two realities. Um, so he says, according to the Abhidharma philosophy, there are two kinds of realities, the conventional and the ultimate. Conventional realities are the reference of ordinary conceptual thought and conventional modes of expression. They include entities such as living beings, persons, men, women, animals, and the apparently stable, persisting objects that constitute our unanalyzed picture of the world. So my guess is tables and chairs and buildings and houses and so on. The Abhidharma philosophy maintains that these notions do not possess ultimate validity for the objects which they signify do not exist in their own right as irreducible realities. Their mode of being is conceptual, not actual. They are products of mental construction, not realities existing by reasons of their own nature. So I guess like a table, you know, this is something human beings have created. You know, at some point, human beings started putting together pieces of wood and then using them to put their computers on and eat dinner and then call them tables. So it's just something conventionally constructed. Ultimate realities, in contrast, are things that exist by reason of their own intrinsic nature. They, these are the dhammas. So the word dhamma or dharma, sometimes it can refer to like the teachings, you know, the, one of the objects of refuge, but it can also refer to just phenomena things that exist. So I think that's what he means here. The Dhammas, the final irredu irreducible components of existence, the ultimate entities which result from a correctly performed analysis of experience. Such, such existence admit of no further reduction, but are themselves the final terms of analysis the true constituents of the complex manifold of experience. Hence, the word paramata is applied to them, and meaning ultimate. Sounds very similar. Mm -hmm. And it says, according to the Sabhidharma, there are four um, ultimate realities. I won't read the whole thing, but the four are... Um, Consciousness, mental factors, matter, and nirvana. Hmm. So I think it's similar because, you know, consciousness, whether it's, you know, a, a whole state of mind or if it's broken down into its components, it's still consciousness. Yeah? And the same with mental factors. If you took the mental factor of feeling, even if you broke it down into its components, it would still be feeling. Yeah, it wouldn't be something else. And matter, um, yeah, if you take a, a um, something that's made of matter and you break it down into its components, it's, it continues to be matter, like, like Jeffrey said. A table, if you break down a table, it, it ceases to be a table. But if you're, just, if you're talking about the matter, 
the physical matter of the table, then even if you break that down into tiny, tiny components, it continues to be matter, physical matter. So I don't know, to me, it seems like very similar explanation to what the Vaibhashikas say. Anyway, I found that interesting. <laughs> Would you say then that the, like the, um, the meditation on the four elements and the mindfulness of the body mm -hmm. Be based on the poly system, which you're saying is kind of similar to this system. Yeah, I think that's my understanding. Is that that's what one does in in that practice of the, um, mindfulness? You're paying very, very, very close attention to each moment of experience, and um, I've heard it said that you can get to the point where you can actually perceive the minute particles of your body changing and and of your mind and so you can see it directly you have direct experience of this the impermanence of of all these different factors making up your body and mind that must be an amazing experience <laughs> sense perception that's what i've heard i don't know i it's it's hard to know um yeah i don't have any experience of it i haven't questioned anybody who's had that experience so it would be good to look into but I've heard yeah I've heard in that like in the Burmese tradition where they really like mm -hmm. many hours every day doing that kind of practice you, you can get to the point where you can directly see directly perceive maybe even with your eyes mm -hmm. now the atoms in the wall moving and changing mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, so let's see if we can do a little bit more. Um, so going back to this business about substance, <laughs> the three time, the three times being substance, um, or uh, Geshe Zopa's um, commentary in Cutting Through Appearances, he says substantial entities. I guess that's another way of saying it. Um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, so Geshe Zopa says what that means is um, yesterday's cup, that's the meaning of the three times. If we take an example of a, an object like a cup, yesterday's cup is the, is the past cup, and then there's today's cup, and there's tomorrow's cup, the future cup. So according to this school, all of these three types of cup exist he says, yesterday's cup exists today as a past cup. Tomorrow's cup exists today as a future cup. And today's cup exists today as a present cup. I really wonder how they can say tomorrow's cup, because what if the cup gets smashed? <laughs> um, but anyway, according to this school, the next bullet point says, past and future objects are impermanent and can perform functions. And I wondered what kind of function they can perform. I looked at Geshe Jambagyatso's commentary to the Abhidharma Kosha, and he said that um, one function is that it can be known by mind. Our mind is able to at least think of, take as an object yesterday's cup. We can think about the cup we saw yesterday. So it's an object of our mind today so it performs that function we can think about it 
We can also think about tomorrow's cup. You can imagine tomorrow that cup will still be there and I'll put my tea in it and drink tea from it. So because we can think of it, we can have it as an object of our mind, then it um, can perform a function. And then I looked up what other Buddhist schools say about this. And except for Prasangika, the other Buddhist schools, so that means the Sutrantika and the Chitta Mantra and the Spatantrika, they say that past and future objects are permanent and that they can't perform a function. But Prasangikas agree with the Vibhashikas. <laughs> They say that past and future objects are impermanent and can perform function. I think this might be like this, what was that? Mm, no, it's called disintegrating. Having ceased. Having ceased, yeah. Vedal calls it having ceased. But in other texts, they, they use the term disintegratedness. Yeah, so I think that's uh, an example of this. Question on thinking, being able to think about it is sufficient to say it performs a function. I can <laughs> imagine a rabbit with horns. But, yeah. So it seems like. But don't ask me to defend the Vibhashika. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I'm not a Vibhashika, uh, so I don't know. They probably come up with an answer okay. for that. But yeah. I mean, often these texts don't give so much detail. Maybe if you get into the really fat ones, like the maps of the profound, they might go into details with that. But these smaller tenets texts don't go into such details. And um, let's see, we got a little bit more time. Um, okay, so I want to talk about this ter these terms substantially existent and imputed existent um the next slide because this is this is something that will come up later um both in tenets but also it comes up in uh, madhyamaka we study madhyamaka philosophy there are these terms and so it's good to have some understanding of what they mean um yeah, so they talk about things being either substantially existent or imputedly existent. So a substantially existent phenomenon is one that can appear to one's mind without the need for other objects, meaning things other than itself, to appear to the mind. And that probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if we look at the next one, <laughs> then the first one will become more clear, hopefully. So uh, as opposed to substantially existent, there's imputedly existent phenomenon. And so this is something that can only appear to the mind in dependence on other phenomena appearing to the mind. So an example is a person we talked about earlier, like if we say Venerable Semkye. So to, to be able to know Venerable Semkye, to be able to say Venerable Semkye is sitting right here in front of me, I need to depend on phenomena that are not Venerable Semkye, like her body, her robes, her glasses. <laughs> 
So those are things that are not Venerable Sankhya, because as we said before, a person is not a body, it's not a mind, it's what is labeled, or what is imputed onto a collection of body and mind. So it's an abstract composite. So body isn't a person, clothes are not a person, glasses are not a person, but when we see those objects, we can say that's Venerable Sankhya. And so that's the meaning of imputedly existent. An imputedly, imputedly existent phenomenon is something that to be able to see it, to be able to say, there it is, we, have, we depend on things which are not that object. Another example, I think this is a correct example. I'm not 100% sure, but forest. We say, I'm working in the forest. I'm going for a walk in the forest. But when we say that, I see a forest over there, or I'm walking in the forest, what are we actually perceiving? We actually perceive a forest. <laughs> forest is just labeled onto a bunch of trees. So you have to have a certain number of trees growing together in one place. And then in dependence on, the, on that, we say, that's a forest. But if we look at those individual trees, n none of them is a forest. No individual tree is a forest. But a group of trees together can say that's a forest. So I think forest is another example of imputedly existent. Another one would be army. Yeah, the army went such and such place, you know. What do we mean by army? There has to be a certain number of soldiers. One soldier isn't an army, one gun isn't an army, but if you have a whole collection of soldiers and their uniforms and their guns, then we can say army on top of that. So that's the meaning of imputedly existent. So those are those are examples are all abstract composites. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Can we well I guess we have to play it out to see if we can draw the conclusion that that's true, that all abstract composites are imputedly existent. That's true. Could be. Yeah, I think so. But consciousness is also imputedly existent. Huh? Consciousnesses would have to also be imputedly, imputedly existent. Um, our consciousness is imputedly existent. Well, I mean, what comes to my mind is if somebody had clairvoyance, if they had the ability to see somebody else's mind, then I think that, that's a that's mental direct perception. That's mm -hmm. that's mental direct perception. Mm -hmm. So I think I don't know. I don't have that experience, but I think they're just able to see directly that mind. Mm -hmm. They don't have to see something that isn't mind in order to mm -hmm. um, perceive mind. Mm -hmm. Now I didn't put any examples of a substantially existent phenomena. Mm -hmm because different schools would say different things. I didn't want to get myself into trouble. Um, if Satrantika, okay, the Satrantika school would say that a body is substantially existent. A body is substantially existent. If a body is in front of us, we don't have to see something that isn't a body in order to say that's a body. It can appear like directly to us. And a tree, I think they would say a tree is substantially existent. If we're standing in front of a tree, 
we can see the tree. We don't have to see something that isn't a tree in order to see a tree. So that would be the um, Satrantika school. Now, if we go to the Prasangika school, nothing is substantially existent. <laughs> Everything is imputedly existent. There's no such thing as substantial existence. Substantial existence is synonymous with inherent existence, true existence, independent existence, all of those things. So they reject substantial existence. Everything that exists is only imputed on top of things that are not it. So they would say a body is just imputed onto a whole bunch of things that are not a body. Now the interesting thing is the Vabhashika seem to say the same thing. Um, okay, let's look at the last bullet point. So the Vabhashikas say that ultimate truths are substantially existent and conventional truths are imputedly existent. So that means they would say that a table, a body, these are imputedly existent. We just impute. Okay, I, I, actually, I found this in Geshima's uh, book. She said, the Vabashika would say that a tree is not substantially existent, but is imputedly existent um, because it's imputed on the basis of its parts. To perceive the tree, the mind that perceives the tree must also perceive phenomena that are not the tree like the tree's branches. So I just thought it was interesting. It's a little bit like Prasangika. Mm -hmm. Kind of there's some there's some commonality, <laughs> but but they still would say that um, conventional truths they are imputedly existent, but they are still true. So the last um, this is another I'm sorry, confusing thing. Um, they say that conventional truths are not substantially existent. They're imputedly existent. However, they are substantially established. So that's another term to drive you crazy. And <laughs> drives me crazy. But apparently what the texts say is that, okay, they're substantially existent and substantially established. All the other schools say they mean the same thing. Substantially existent, substanti substantially established mean the same thing. They're synonymous. But only this school, Vibhashikas, <laughs> make a difference between substantially existent and substantially established. And I'll read what Jeffrey says about this. Um, yeah. Um, according to Vibhashika, all phenomena, both Conventional truths and ultimate truths are substantially established because the imputations are true. Even if even if something is just imputed, the table is just imputed, but it's true. It's a true uh, imputation. We have to stop. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, what Jeffrey said is um, can't find it. Yeah, that they were that they're trying to to. Um, Oh yeah, they want to provide a status of substantiality to conventional truths. <laughs> that's why they, that's why they make this distinction. 
between substantially existent and substantially established. They want to be able to say that conventional truths, they do have some substantiality, some way in which they're substantial because they are true. I don't know, that's, like I say, for me, this is, this is difficult to understand, but I did want to introduce this because these terms, at least substantially existent and imputedly existent, those terms do come up again and again as we, go, as we look at the different schools. So at least to start looking at them here. So we better stop here. Okay, so let's dedicate the merit. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their sufferings. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore.